are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. The Word of the Lord, as written in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. How much longer? When do we get there? Everyone who's been a kid, everyone who's been a parent knows this kind of two-part discordant harmony of longing and impatience. We heard it, my wife Amelia and I, when we would drive down to Sanibel Island in Florida with our kids to see Amelia's parents because the end of the journey was sun and sandcastles and beach and seashells and swimming and kayaking in the Gulf and ice cream and hugs and love and laughter. And for us adults, it was even better because it usually meant we were going down in November and getting out of the 40-degree weather in the Midwest and having Thanksgiving in the 70-degree weather on the sun porch overlooking the Gulf of Mexico and the beautiful sunsets. It was just like a slice of heaven, right? But to get there was an 18-hour drive. And for the kids, especially when they were little, that meant waiting and being bored and having nothing to do. I mean, they were just basically passengers. I mean, let's be honest. They were like sentient luggage on the trip. <laughs> They're just waiting to get to the good part, right? Mom and dad, hurry up and do whatever it is you need to do so that we can get to the good times that we know are coming. I mean, that's understandable, right? We can all kind of relate to that. And I, I think there's a connection to that experience and what the disciples are maybe feeling or perhaps expressing in their question and in their longing to Jesus. When do we get to the good part? When does the good stuff happen? When, when does the plan start to take place? Because they're asking, is this when the kingdom is going to come, Jesus? Because if you think about it, Jesus' kingdom, everything that they've seen in him, everything they've seen him do, life, beauty, forgiveness, healing, peace, restoration, 
all the good that we were created for. When does that happen, Jesus, finally and fully and forever? Because it's what we were made for. It's what we long for. Jesus ruling over everything to bring life and to restore all of creation to the way that it was meant to be. And I think that there's something similar here in the disciples, maybe in their expectation of how the good times are going to get here. Jesus, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom? Is this the time? Is is it now? Is is all the good stuff going to happen now when we're going to see you bring about every good thing? How much longer do we have to wait until we get to the good part? Until you fulfill all your promises? I think what Luke is trying to communicate to us in this passage is this. We are not just passengers to Jesus' kingdom. We are partners in it. We're not just passengers to a kingdom that's going to happen someday out there. We are partners in his kingdom here and now. Now, depending on how we read their question in verse 6, it could sound like they're asking, hey, is this when you're going to finally drive out the Romans, right? And and give us the power and the authority and make us free again and independent. You know, and if that's what they're asking, it kind of makes sense that Jesus is sort of like slapping his forehead and going like, guys, don't you get it? But the disciples are not dumb, okay? They've spent three years following Jesus, listening to him. They've just had 40 days of instruction on the kingdom. Remember, we saw that last week in verse 3 appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom. So they're, they're not numbskulls who just you know, can't get what seems obvious to us, right? They, they know the scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, and all the prophecies about the end of all things. When God is going to pour out his spirit, write his law on people's hearts, when he's going to finally make everything the way it should be and destroy and judge sin and evil once and forever, and we're going to live in a kingdom of peace and beauty and fulfillment and blessing and righteousness forever. It's heaven and earth reunited the way it was supposed to be. So it's not that they're looking for the wrong thing, but I do think maybe what's going on here is Based on what the prophets saw, what they were expecting, reconciliation and restoration and justice and transformation, it's all going to happen at one time at the end of all things, right? By the Messiah's power. And I think Jesus is reshaping their expectations and maybe our expectations for what that kingdom looks like and how it's going to happen and what it means for us. Because they're asking, Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom? They see that it's Jesus' work, that he's going to bring about his gracious rule in the world, and whether or not they're expecting, you know, some kind of a national political rule through the physical kingdom of Israel, the point that Jesus is getting across here is we are not passive spectators. We are not passengers. We are partners with Jesus. Look at what, back up what we heard at the end of verses 4 and 5 last week. Jesus says, wait for the promise of the Father, 
because you will be baptized. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just like, remember, the Spirit comes over Jesus in his baptism to demonstrate that he is being set apart and filled and commissioned and anointed for the ministry of declaring and bringing about the kingdom in the same way the Spirit is going to come and be baptizing God's people for our work in declaring and living out the kingdom just like Jesus did. So if the Spirit is about to come, as Jesus has promised, doesn't that mean that the kingdom is going to come in its fullness too? And, and I think the mistake that they made that maybe is related to something we can connect to is the, the outworking and the timing of that kingdom. So we want to look just real briefly at what's packed into these verses about the reality, the nature of that kingdom, and, and our participation, our partnership in it. First of all, Jesus is pointing out the kingdom is spiritual in its character. The kingdom is not particularly physical or geographical, because that's what we usually think of when we hear of a kingdom, the kingdom of Nepal or the United Kingdom. It's a place that you can point to on a map. It has borders, and it has a population count, and it has a GDP and, and all that. But the kingdom of God doesn't look like that. Jesus says that the, the Spirit is going to come on you in power for your witness to the kingdom. And the exercise of power is a part of any kingdom isn't it? To have a kingdom, you have power that you're exercising and maintaining, but power in God's kingdom is different from the way that earthly kingdoms get and exercise authority. The kingdom of God is his rule in the lives of his people to make them look like Jesus. That's the power of the kingdom of God. It comes by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's spread by witness, not by weapons. It, it comes through the gospel of peace, not a declaration of war. And, and it moves by the work of the Spirit, not by political power, not by revolutionary violence. The Scottish pastor and author George MacDonald said this, The kingdom of heaven has not come when God's will is our law. It comes when God's will is our will. Does that make sense? It, it, it's not reflected necessarily in, in the ways that we exercise power and express it here in this world. So Jesus is rejecting kind of a, a political agenda for the kingdom, but, but he's also rejecting sort of a super spiritualizing of the kingdom. To say that it's spiritual does not mean that God's kingdom is off in the future somewhere in heaven someday. The kingdom is not identified with any political ideology or party or program, but it has profound political and economic and social and cultural implications because the values of Jesus' kingdom will always come into conflict with the values and the priorities of the world and the cultures that we live in. And that means that as citizens of God's kingdom, we're going to deny worldly authorities the supreme loyalty and authority that they always want to claim over our lives and over our affections. Because 
Jesus' kingdom is in this world, but it doesn't operate like worldly kingdoms. It's about the demonstration of God's ways and God's values in this world through his people who are empowered by the Spirit. Jesus comes and demonstrates that godly power is exercised in creating a community that's defined by forgiveness and healing and kindness and loving enemies and reaching out to people that we wouldn't normally think of. The, the book of Acts, as, you, as we go through it, you're going to see intentionally Luke is connecting the, the mission of witnessing to Jesus with reenacting the pattern of his life. To be a witness to Jesus' kingdom is to reflect the shape of his life, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. In other words, we follow Jesus as his witnesses by dying to ourselves and dying to an old life to live for God and others. That's the kingdom of God. It's not marked out on a map. It's traced in the lives of his followers. The, the kingdom of God is spiritual in its character, and it's international. It's, it's transcultural, cross-cultural in its membership. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come to make his people his witnesses in verse 8. You will receive power when the Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses. And that's going to begin in Jerusalem, where they are, with the people that they know, but it, but it radiates out. Jesus is again echoing the Old Testament prophets who say the law is going to go out from Zion to all the nations who will be reconciled to God through the Messiah. But there's something different happening here, because in the Old Testament, there was no sort of outward missionary movement. The vision was that the nations will stream to the mountain of God. But now Jesus is saying, no, actually the people of God are going out. It's sort of like when I was a kid on the playground, we had this little round spinny thing with handles on it. And you ran as fast as you could in a circle around it. And you try and jump on it and hang on for as long as you could until you get thrown off it in some random direction and smack your head on something. That was, that was playground equipment when we were kids. That's kind of what Jesus is picturing here in a good way. There's a, there's a centrifugal force of the gospel that says God's people are not waiting for people to come in here. We are going out intentionally. We are sent because that's Jesus' pattern. He leaves heaven and comes to this earth to go and seek the lost in order to bring them in. That's the whole point, that the kingdom then is not defined anymore by any nationality or ethnicity or race or background or culture. I mean, look at the pattern that's actually, the, in a sense, the, book of, the table of contents for the book of Acts in verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What Jesus is saying is that it's not just that his disciples don't wait for people to come in, but we are sent out across every boundary and barrier. Because Christ's kingdom, it's not incompatible with patriotism and loving our country and being grateful for it, but it, 
it does draw the line as sort of a narrow nationalism or an ethnic exclusivity. The, the kingdom is crossing every boundary of political partisanship and, and all the barriers and lines that we draw to figure out who's in and who's out. And, and that's all of us, right? Especially in this world and this culture that we live in. There are probably people that you have a hard time imagining that they could be in the kingdom of God, that God could love them, that God is working in their lives, that God is speaking to them, that God is evident in them. Who are those people for you? Because we probably all have them. The world encourages us to identify those people and look down on them and exclude them and condemn them. And Jesus instead is saying, I'm creating a community where race and rank and nation and gender and culture and background and political beliefs are barriers that we cross to create a new kind of humanity that's defined by identity in Jesus. Because the kingdom is, is cross-cultural in its membership and, and it's gradual in its expansion. It doesn't happen all at once, but it is happening now. Luke records in his gospel a parable that Jesus told specifically as he was heading towards Jerusalem because some people wanted to know, is the kingdom going to happen now? So the apostles, I, I think, are maybe asking here, okay, I know you didn't do it before the resurrection, but now that the resurrection has happened, is now when all the good stuff's going to happen. And he's saying, no. First of all, uh, interestingly, look at this in verse 7. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In, in other words, God has details and God has plans and God knows what he's doing. And the apostles' question is, you know, apparently maybe just to satisfy their curiosity or they're expressing some kind of impatience. And, and Jesus is saying to them, like he says to us, you don't need to know. That's not important for you to know. You don't need to know. Only I need to know. And, and though they don't know the, the times or the details of the plans, they will receive power so that they can be witnesses in ever-widening circles in all the places that Jesus takes them. This, this is the whole center of Jesus' teaching and the pattern that we're going to see in this book, that when the Spirit comes in power, the, the reign of God, the rule of God's goodness and blessing and life that Jesus has promised and started now spreads out through his people in all the places that they go. It's going to be spiritual in its character. It's going to be transforming the lives of the people in it. It's going to be international in its membership, including people from every background. And it's going to be gradual in expansion. It's going to start from where God's people are and spread out as God's people go out into all the different places that he takes them. And the point is, we are not passengers. On the way to God's kingdom, off there somewhere, we are partners in it. And for that to happen, Jesus has to leave so that the Spirit can come and dwell in his people. That's the second movement here in this passage, starting in verse 9. After he says this, as they're looking on, he is lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
Now, I, I think there's a couple of reasons for this. I mean, over these 40 days, Jesus has been appearing and disappearing here and there and, uh, you know, at different times and places, the disciples on Emmaus, the disciples on the beach, and he's cooking breakfast for him, and then he disappears and he reappears another time. I think this public, visible ascension of Jesus was to tell them, this is it, okay? You don't look for me anymore on this earth. And, and the angels come Standing next to them in verse 10, while they're gazing into heaven, two men stood by them saying, Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So there's an encouragement and a reminder too, right? Like you, you saw him leave and you're going to see him come again. And that has to happen for the promise of the spirit to come, to empower you for mission, Right? The apostles are standing there with their jaws open, staring up into heaven, right? Like, wow. Amazing. And it's almost like the angels come and they, like, they have to like close their mouths and like pull their heads back down to earth. Because I think that's the point, right? The angels are saying there's something fundamentally wrong with standing around, staring up into heaven, longingly looking for Jesus when he's just told us there's a mission right in front of us. And he's saying, look, you've been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. The vision that you need is not upwards in longing towards heaven, but outwards in compassion to a world that needs your witness. In word and in deed. Right? I wonder if there's maybe a little warning here for us about the danger of Chasing spiritual highs, right? Like better preaching or more moving worship or deeper prayer times. And if it's not here, I'll go find it somewhere else. And, you know, th those things are not bad in themselves, but they're not attractions. They're not entertainment. They're not for our own sake. They're for our encouragement, our empowerment, and our reassurance to fulfill the mission. The reason that God gives us those spiritual experiences is to reassure us and to empower us to send us out on the mission that he's given us. Not that we would just keep looking up in heaven for the next really awesome thing that we can feel or experience or have for its own sake. And I think in the same way, the question about, you know, is this the time? And Jesus says, look, you don't need to have all the details. I think maybe there's also kind of a warning for us about the temptation, you know, about curiosity about what's heaven going to be like and speculation about prophetic fulfillment and focusing on times and seasons. I mean, that stuff can be interesting in one way, but it can also, we can get wrapped up with it, right? And it ends up distracting us from the work of the kingdom, from being witnesses to Jesus, right? We, Christ is going to come back. That's what the angels say. You, you don't have to look for it because you're not going to miss it. It's going to be just as visible as what you just saw. So remember that and get busy with the work, the angels are saying. I mean, it's sort of like this. If you've ever been out on a walk at night, maybe on the beach or in, a, you know, in the woods somewhere, you're out camping, and, and your home that you're getting back to is off in the distance somewhere. It's at the other end of the trail, and you can see the light off in the distance, and you've got a flashlight, so you can see the trail in front of you, right? You, you've got the next two or three steps in front of you. But there's still this part of us that would really love to have like a, 
five candle, five million candle power flashlight, searchlight that would like illuminate the whole path all at once, right? I want to know about the twists and the turns and the ups and the downs. And Jesus doesn't give us that. He gives us enough light to see where we're going and the next few steps in front of us so that we can keep walking by faith. He's given us enough. You've seen him go. You'll see him come back, the angels say. But before that, there's another coming and going that you really have to focus on. The Spirit is going to come, and you must go to go into the world as witnesses to Jesus. That's why you're here. We're not passengers to Jesus' kingdom. We're partners in it. Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom? Lord, when, when will you make things right? In one form or another, it's probably a question we've all asked. And I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. That's really what our prayers are, right? When we're talking to the Father and asking him and, and crying out and, and opening our hearts, our prayer requests are about asking Jesus to fix something in our lives or, you know, in our less stellar moments, to fix something in other people that annoys us or bothers us or to fix something out in the world that isn't right. And it's, again, it's not that those things are wrong. I mean, there, there's a natural part to us because there's something in us, there's something in the world, there's something in systems and structures and relationships that is broken and lost and, and unfulfilled and Jesus is more than capable of fixing those things. And there's certainly plenty of work to be done. Opportunities for reflecting Jesus' kingdom are everywhere. But what if those are opportunities for us to step into in Jesus' power? To be the agents that he's going to use to reflect what his kingdom is like. What if we're the ones not to, you know, restore the kingdom in its fullness, but at least to reflect it? and how we enter into those messes, and how we respond to those people. See, Jesus moves the focus from himself. They're literally staring up in the sky, looking at Jesus. And the angels are bringing the disciples' vision back down to the world around them and to what Jesus has for them to do. You will receive power, Jesus says. You will be my witnesses in expanding and reflecting my rule. Man, I know when I'm honest, I look in my life and there are plenty of things that need restoring, things that need fixing, things that need to look more like Jesus' rule and reign in me. And there are things in my relationships, things in my life, things in my work, things in my neighborhood, things in my community. How would me being a partner with Jesus in restoring his kingdom change or shape my life? my decisions, my priorities. God says through the prophet Isaiah, if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and the Lord will guide you and will continually grant your desires in scorched places. You will be like a spring of water and you will be called repairer of the breach and restorer of broken streets. Do you see yourself that way? 
That's the mission. It sounds a lot like what Jesus says his followers are going to be doing when we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the sick and those in prison. He's picking up the language of the prophets of what the experience and the reflection of God's kingdom looks like in our world. Do you see yourself as having the power by God's spirit and the potential to bring God's kingdom to reality around you? Jesus said, truly the one who believes in me will do the things that I have been doing. No, in fact, they will do greater things than what I have been doing. Not more spectacular ones, but more far-reaching ones. Because it starts here and it spirals out to the entire world through a whole community of Jesus' people, the body of Christ that is now everywhere that God's people are. We pray, Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And honestly, sometimes I, you know, I pray that and I just think, man, I sure hope Jesus gets to work doing that. <laughs> Half the time, I don't even realize the prayer is really saying, Jesus, use me. That your will would be done on earth through me by your spirit and your resurrection life as it is in heaven. Because the kingdom is not a thing or a place. It's a way of being in the reality of our lives and in the world. And that kingdom, Jesus' kingdom is here when we love our enemies. When we do good to those who hate us. When we turn the other cheek when we're struck. When we pray for those who curse us and bless those who revile us. When we forgive the offender. The kingdom is not a reward for those works. It is those works. Don't you see? That's what Jesus has come to be and to do, to restore everything that's broken and make it the way it's supposed to be. And now we're the ones who are empowered by the Spirit to do what Jesus was doing. That's what the whole book of Acts is going to show us. And, and that's what we are. That's what we're here for. What does that mean for your life? this week, for, you, for your work, for your family, for your community. None of us are called to do everything, but all of us are called, empowered by the Spirit to do what we can, where we are, because God has poured out His Spirit on His people to make us witnesses in our lives to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to bring life from death. We're not passengers to God's kingdom. We are partners in it. Some of you may have known that Southwest Florida was hit pretty hard by a hurricane last fall, and Amelia's parents, Tom and Judy, got out safely. But for a while, they were essentially homeless. And, and then as the storm passed and they started, the, the, the condo is still standing, but it had to be gutted. And there's no telling when or if they'll ever live in that condo again. And for Amelia's family, there's this real sense of loss and longing, right? This, this place that has meant happiness and blessing and family and community and joy has been taken away. And that's the way, in a sense, it's probably going to be with every earthly blessing and good that we have, even if we don't lose our homes. I mean, if we live long enough, our bodies are going to fall apart. And there's just going to be diminishment and loss, right? In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer picks up this image uh, 
from the Old Testament of God's voice thundering from his holy mountain and uh, reminding that God one day again will thunder out in judgment and shake the heavens and the earth and remove everything that is unholy and impure and broken and opposed to him. But the writer says, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he doesn't say we will receive it one day out in the future, although that's true. He's saying we are receiving it now. If we are in Christ, we are in his kingdom, and we are part of his kingdom, and we are receiving and reflecting the very rule of God to make everything the way it ought to be. That's the kingdom that matters. And we're not just passengers on the way to it someday out in the future. We are partners in it here and now. We live in it. We reflect it. We're witnesses to it reality. And it doesn't matter what circumstances we live in. If you have a, a beach home or a cabin in the woods or a retreat somewhere, that's awesome. But if those things are taken away, you are still receiving a kingdom that can never be shaken. Because it's the kingdom of Jesus' power and life in us and through us to bring life and beauty and joy and community and belonging and blessing everywhere that we are and anywhere that we are. You are a witness. You are a participant in Jesus' kingdom. Father, thank you. Thank you that... Uh, Jesus has come not only to just do things that lead to the cross so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven someday, but, but your vision and your blessing for us is so much bigger and so much more. And Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom, the reality of your rule, your blessing, your life in this world and through your people by your Spirit. Oh, Father, lift our vision and fill us and empower us again with your spirit to be the witnesses of your kingdom in our lives, in our families, in our community, in this world, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in and through your people in all the places that you take us. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for that calling. Thank you for that reality. Help us to live it out in the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.